Good to see everyone today. How you doing? Good. You know, after last weekend, I've got another year under my belt. I'm 30 now, and uh, hardly. Brian and I are actually two days apart and uh, celebrated our birthdays last weekend. But the longer I live, the more I'm on this journey, the more I am so grateful that I've got Jesus in my life. I mean, I don't know how I would face trials or temptations. I don't know how I would deal with the icy roads of central Ohio without Jesus by my side, without God in my life. And um, I'm just wondering, is there anybody else in the room who would echo that and just say, I love having Jesus in my life? It's all about him. And uh, it's good to worship him, isn't it? He's worthy of it. Well, we're going to continue our, our series in James today. If you need a copy of the scriptures so you can follow along with us, we've got some loner Bibles in the back, and you can jump up and grab one of those. And uh, the rest of us, if you'd turn to James chapter 2. I'm wondering how many of you get the opportunity to fly fairly often. See your hands? Okay. Uh, if you do, then you are no doubt familiar with the uh, two groups of people, two distinct groups of people that you find hanging around in the boarding area at airports. The first group are those who are already checked in. And they've got their seat assignment, they've got their boarding pass, they're relaxed, they're set to go. And oftentimes you'll find these people just kind of off to the side, maybe reading the USA Today newspaper or looking up at the uh, 24-hour news channels that are on in every airport now. Or maybe they're, you know, sleeping and drooling, you know, which happens sometimes. Not a care in the world, not a worry in the world. They're set, they're ready to go, they've got their boarding pass. Life is good. There's a second group of people that are somewhat conspicuous in and around the boarding areas and the ticket counters, and that's the, those who are standby passengers. Anybody ever flown standby? That's a fun experience, isn't it? <laughs> uh, these people are not quietly reading or relaxed or sitting around. They're usually kind of nervously pacing right in front of the ticket counter. They're on a first-name basis with the ticket agent there. They're trying to get them to, to get them a seat on the flight. And uh, these folks are nervous and agitated and, and uh, you know, they're not happy campers until they hear their name called and they're given their, their uh, seat on the plane, they're given their boarding pass and then their whole demeanor changes, right? They go from being agitated and aggravated to, to exhaling and taking a breath and stepping back a little bit. Maybe they hug and kiss the ticket agent. You know, they whip out their cell phone and they start talking to their loved ones about their good fortune and they're going to be on the flight and you can meet me there at 6 p.m. or whatever. And, and life is good because now they know they're not going to be left at the gate. They've got their boarding pass. They are ready to go. There's a huge difference between hoping that something will happen and knowing for certain, knowing for sure that something will happen. Wouldn't you agree? It's that kind of confidence that James has in mind when he pens this section that we're looking at today. The confidence that you know where you're going. That you have your boarding pass in hand and you can relax a little bit because you're certain of your destination. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to James chapter 2. And I'd like us to read aloud together. It's kind of a lengthy... uh, portion of scripture, but um, we'll get through it, okay? James 2, beginning with verse 14, 
And uh, let's read this all out loud together from the New International Version. It goes like this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, James is giving us some pretty straightforward talk here, isn't he? And uh, we've discovered over the past few weeks, he's just that kind of a guy. He's going to give it to us. He's going to give it to us straight up. And I think that uh, the reason he begins this section with a question is that he kind of wants to shock his listeners, his audience, his readers, and maybe even us. I think he wants to shock us into taking a very serious assessment of our, our lives. And so he begins by asking this question, what good is it, my brothers... What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? In other words, if someone claims to be a Christian but their lifestyle doesn't provide much evidence to support that claim, is that person really saved? Is their faith genuine? That's the question. And of course, this is a rhetorical question, isn't it? Can such faith save him? What's the answer? No. No, it can't. Faith that has no effect on the way a person lives their life is not saving faith, James would say. In effect, that person would be left standing at the gate without a boarding pass. Now, last weekend, Brian taught us from uh, the earlier section that it is foolish to prejudge people based on external factors. Do you remember that? The foolishness of judging people based on their appearance, their looks, their socioeconomic status, their income, the house they live in, all that kind of stuff, James told us was foolish. And the reason that's the case is because really, when you think about it, only God can accurately judge people. Would you agree with that? Only God can accurately judge people. And in God's judgment, in God's way of seeing, he doesn't evaluate people like we do. You know, we talk about 
people being rich or poor or uh, fat or skinny or good-looking or homely or whatever. I mean, we evaluate people that way. God does not judge people like that. In fact, God really only has a single line of demarcation. There's really only two groups of people in God's eyes, the saved and the unsaved. Those who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ and those who do not. I mean, honestly, in God's eyes, that's pretty much it. The things that we make distinctions about among people, he doesn't look at that way. He just says, look, are you saved or are you not yet saved? Two groups of people. And what the Bible is very clear about is that there's a very real distinction between those two groups when it comes to things like your sin account with God, your ability to to overcome habits in your life, your standing with the Lord, and ultimately your eternal destiny hinges upon which group you're in, saved or not saved, saved or lost. And here's the deal. James is going to tell us today in this section the truth about faith. And he's going to start off by making this point. Number one, not everyone who claims to have faith is truly saved. Do you see that? Not everyone who says they're a Christian is truly a Christian. Now, I wonder, have you ever known someone in your life that, you know, claimed to be a Christian, talked it, but you kind of had some doubts? You ever known anybody like that? I have. Um, over the years, I've met a number of people like that. One guy in particular stands out. And uh, he would come here on weekends, on occasion, and uh, attend church here. And it was obvious to me that he, he wanted to be seen. Okay? He wanted everyone to know that, that he was here. And he would also make the obligatory visits when his children were in things here. He would show up, and again, he would make sure that, that he was seen by the right people. And uh, he would even use, when we talked to him, he would even use that Christian kind of language that Christians use sometimes, Christianese. You know, he would say things like, well, praise the Lord, you know, and, and, isn't, and God's good, and I'm praying about this and that, and... And then we would hear things about his life outside this place. And we would hear about this episode and this incident and, and this event. And, and I remember just in my heart thinking, I really wonder if this guy's the real deal. Or is he just all talk? And maybe you hear that and you say, well, we're not supposed to judge people, right? Weren't you, weren't you judging? I was trying not to, but there was such a mismatch between this guy's talk and his walk that it just kind of begged the question. Does this guy really have genuine faith? James says in this passage that there are people who say they're saved, but in reality they're not. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying and and kind of making a generalization here, I just want to say I think there are different kinds of unsaved people. I'm going to give you four groups, okay? Four different groups of unsaved people that I've observed in my life. One I would call the far-from-God folks. Far from God. You know anybody who's just far from God? They're not saved, and they don't really care yet. Um, God's not really in their life. In fact, if if they believe in God, they're just hoping that he'll leave them alone. I'm fine just as I am. I like my life the way it is. I'm I'm living my life. I don't really want any interference 
from any God if there is one. These are the far from God folks, and you probably know folks like that. And unless somehow God intervenes in that person's life and stirs up stuff, or maybe lets them encounter a situation they can't handle where the wheels are coming off, unless that happens, they won't become the next kind of unsaved person that I have observed over the years, and that's sincere seekers. So you've got people who are far from God, and then you've got sincere seekers. And I love these people. I love these people. Some of you, you're here today. You, you are a sincere seeker. You're in that group. You, you're not saved. You're pretty sure of that, but you're on a, a search. You're on a mission to discover truth. And so maybe you're here today, and you're just checking out church and Christians and Christianity and Christ and the Bible, and we just want to say to you, Welcome. Welcome. We want to be the kind of church where you can safely do your investigative work and check out the claims that Jesus made for himself. Sincere seekers. Some people, that's, that's who they are. Then there's a third group of unsaved people that I would identify and, and call them the deceived. Okay? These are people who think they're saved, but they're not. They think that they are. I sometimes would refer to them as SWRs, smug without reason. These folks, the spiritually deceived, are relying on the wrong things to make them right with God. And Jesus said that if they don't wake up, they're going to end up experiencing their worst nightmare. Didn't Jesus say that? He said, on Judgment Day, there's going to be a group of people who come to me, and he said, I'm going to say to them, depart. I didn't know you. I I know you thought you were saved. I I know you thought you were true believers, but you're not. These are the spiritually deceived folks. They think they have a valid boarding pass, but they don't. It's bogus. They've been deceived. And there's a fourth group of unbelievers. I would call these not the deceived, but the deceivers. Okay, the pretenders, maybe. These are folks who are not saved. They know they're not saved, but they're trying to come off as if they are. They're trying to look Christian. And when they feel that it's advantageous to them, they play the game. They try to look and act and and, and talk like Christians, but they are pretenders, they are phonies, they are imposters. They are unwilling to fully surrender their hearts to Christ but they do enjoy being viewed by other people as religious or as spiritual. It feeds something in them. But they are the pretenders. Jesus reserved his harshest words for people in this group, didn't he? And he he basically said, look, you may think you can fool people, and maybe you are fooling people, but you cannot fool God. He knows the true condition of your heart. Now, I say all this to say that I think that in this passage, James has two of these groups in his crosshairs when he writes this. Which ones do you think they are? I think it's these last two groups, the deceived and the deceivers. I I think James wants to wake them up and say, look, you may think you're saved or you may, you know, talk a good talk, but you need to do a check here, a spiritual gut check, and make sure you've got the real thing. So he says, just because you say you're saved doesn't mean you really are. Number two, he makes this assertion. A person's faith is proven genuine not by words, 
but by works or deeds, what he says. Basically, he's saying this. You can tell if a person's faith is real by their lifestyle, by how they live their life. It's going to show. Somehow, some way, it's going to show up. Now, someone might say, well, wait a second. All this talk about deeds and stuff. I thought we were saved by faith. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? And we should not get confused here. The Bible does teach that we are saved. We come into a relationship with God by faith. Amen? By faith alone. However, faith that is real will cause a person to express that faith through actions, through deeds, through works, through behaviors, through their lifestyle. That's what James is saying. One theologian said it like this. It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Let me read that again. It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Or put another way, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. You cannot have God in your life and it not show. That's what he's saying. Faith, true faith, opens the door to have God in your life. And when God, the creator of the universe, is in your life, he's going to have an effect. It's going to show up. James says, if you want to know if you're really saved, I think it's interesting what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, if you want to know if you're really saved, then what you need to do is think back to when you prayed that prayer And try to remember if you really meant it. He doesn't say that. He does not say, you know, trust in your baptism or trust in your confirmation experience to know if you're really saved. He doesn't even say, you know, take the word of your youth pastor or your pastor. What does he say? Look at your life. Look at your lifestyle. And if you are truly saved, you will see the identifying marks of a Christian in your life. Somehow, somewhere, they'll be there. And if you see those, those signs of life, then you can safely conclude that you are a saved person. If you can't, you better take serious inventory of your life. Number three, what he's saying is that true faith will be evidenced by some degree of a transformed behavior. Some degree. It's going to show up. You say, okay, uh, what, what kind of behavior? What is the evidence of genuine faith that saves someone? Well, we're going to look at that more a little bit later, but he gives us one example right here in verse 15. He says, kind of a hypothetical situation, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So what's the evidence here of true, genuine faith? What is it? Acts of compassion, right? Acts of compassion. Basically is what he said. He said, if you've got God in you, God is going to begin to transform you and expand your heart so that your heart is touched by the needs of people. And you're going to find this growing in you. I mean, maybe not all the time. Maybe you'll miss some, but, but you're going to see this in your life more and more, acts of compassion. And this makes sense to me because I know God's a compassionate God. God has a heart of compassion. And if God is in me, 
I'm going to have that heart of compassion. Somewhere, some way, that's going to show up. James says this, you're going to find true believers reaching out to meet the needs of other people. That's going to, that's going to be one evidence that you're a genuine Christian. Now, I think James anticipates some pushback here from what he's written so far. In verse 18, it says, Well, but someone will say, You have faith and I have deeds. In other words, Hey, lighten up, will you? Come on, James. Not everybody is so outgoing with their faith. Some people are very private, and their relationship with God is an extremely personal matter to them. Sure, there are other people who like to wear their religion on their sleeve and they put bumper stickers on their car and they hand out tracts at the drive-thru and stuff like that, but not everybody's like that, James. To that, James responds, well, show me your faith without deeds. Try to do that. I'll show you my faith by what I do. He's basically saying, okay, uh, I know it's true that faith is invisible. But listen, he would say, if you can't show me any deeds, if you can't point to any proof, any corroborating data that would support your claim to be a Christian, maybe you need to be concerned about the true state of your soul. I think he would say faith is kind of like calories, okay? You can't see calories, but you can certainly see the evidence of calories, right? Well, faith is like that. Faith itself is invisible, but faith is going to show up. (laughs) There's going to be outward evidence. There has to be, James says. It's going to show. He would say faith that never shows up anywhere in any visible, tangible way is useless, dead faith. Then I think he anticipates some pushback from another sector. Someone might be saying at this point, well, okay, I don't do all that outward stuff that you're talking about, James, but I believe in God. Now, isn't that enough? I believe in God. What does James say? Verse 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. (laughs) Kind of sarcastic a little bit there. You know, way to go. Good job. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. They tremble stop to think about the fact that demons are very orthodox in their faith? You read through the Gospels and you, you see and read about the comments that demons make when Jesus was around. Demons believe in God, don't they? Demons believe in God. Demons believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Demons believe in heaven and hell. Don't send us into the abyss, the pit. Demons believe all that stuff. The devil believes all that stuff. Are they going to be in heaven? No demons in heaven. No Satan in heaven. What's James' point? He's saying, look, just giving mental assent to the basic doctrines and teachings of Christianity is not enough. (laughs) It will not save you. Just having an educated intellectual faith in the facts of Christianity... He says the demons believe that and they shudder and they tremble. You know why? Because they know that their acceptance of the facts of Christianity is not going to 
spare them from eternal torment. I spent six years in the South, and people are a little different in the South. Preachers are a little different in the South. And there was this one guy once who was preaching away, and he was sweating, and he had his hanky action going, and he was yelling. And I remember him saying this, the difference, just about like that, the difference between heaven 